Thanks, Andrew. Uh, good morning. My name is Julia. Uh, the reading today is on the screen behind me. We're going to start in Acts chapter 19, verses 21 to 22. After all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I have been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. He sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia, while he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. Now moving on to chapter 20, verses 1 to 12. When the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples and after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. He travelled through the area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people and finally arrived in Greece, where he stayed three months. Because some Jews had plotted against him just as he was about to sail for Syria, he decided to go back through Macedonia. He was accompanied by Sopater, son of Pyrrhus, from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derby, Timothy also, and Tychius and Trophimus from the province of Asia. These men went on ahead and waited for us at Troas. But we sailed from Philippi after the festival of unleavened bread, and five days later joined the others at Troas, where we stayed seven days. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people and, because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man and put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. Then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. After talking until daylight, he left. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. Good morning, friends. It's good to be here today. Uh, I just thought I'd introduce myself. I'm not just some random person who's walked off the street. My name's James, and I'm a member of Grace Anglican Church Harrington Park and Grace Anglican Church at night, uh, so part of the Grace Anglican family. Uh, my, my family, my, I'm married to Bridget. She's over there in the pink. Uh, during the week, I work as an engineer over in Smeaton Grange. And today, I've been given the privilege of teaching God's Word uh, this morning from Acts chapter 20. Um, so why don't we uh, get stuck in? I hope you've got a paper Bible with you, and we're going to get into God's Word. But before we do, let me ask you a question. Have you ever fallen asleep in a sermon? Paul Eutychus might have tumbled off his perch in Acts chapter 20, but it's humbling to notice that what took Paul many hours of preaching takes most preachers only a few minutes on a Sunday morning. This is a blurb from the back of a book uh, titled Saving Eutychus. It's up there on the screen behind me by Gary Miller and Phil Campbell. 
It's a book for preachers, and the subtitle of the book is How to Preach God's Word and Keep People Awake. Maybe you are prone to the mid-sermon snooze. About the 15, 20-minute mark, the eyes droop shut, the shoulders sink, the voice from the front fades into the back of your mind as it drones on and on. Maybe your mid-sermon stupor takes more of a mental form than a physical sleeping. You know, the mind wanders to the afternoon's activities, the eyes glaze over, the open Bible tips shut, the phone comes out of the pocket, the Instagram app loads. Our Bible passage puts two short stories before us today. One short story about a big segment of Paul's missionary journey, and a second short story about a sermon sleepyhead's miraculous resurrection. These two short stories tie together to teach us a really important thing about Paul's approach to his mission work. And here it is on the screen. Paul's mission work is more than evangelizing new believers. It also involves strengthening existing believers by preaching God's word. Strengthening existing believers by preaching God's word. We saw this two weeks ago in Alex. You might remember Alex, big tall guy. He, his sermon, he talked about strengthening believers, and we're seeing it again in today's passage. Now, in light of the second story, I don't want anyone to fall asleep. So I'm, I've worked hard to try and make this talk engaging so no one falls asleep or dies. So stay awake, stay alive, as we together learn from the Word of God. Let's pray as we get in. Heavenly Father, As we hear your voice to us this day, please deliver us from hardness of heart. Please help us to concentrate on what you have to say to us. Please help me to get out of the way that your word may shine clearly forth. We pray that we may not merely listen to the word, but do what it says. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our passage begins after the rite in Ephesus. But the story of the ride in Ephesus is a bit of a sidetrack. To reorient ourselves with the big overarching flow of the book of Acts, we need to go back to chapter 19, that first Bible reading we had. So I hope you've got your Bible open. It's also on the screen. Chapter 19, verse 21. After all of this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I've been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. Paul's already decided that he's going to go back through, sorry, he's going to go to Macedonia and Achaia, back to Jerusalem, and after that, on to Rome. With that context in mind, we pick up our story today, chapter 20, verse 1. When the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. Notice that before he sets out, he gathers the church in Ephesus to encourage them, There's a good chance this is actually the last time he's he's in Ephesus. So what does he do in their final hours together? He encourages them. He strengthens them by the word of God. After this, he sets out for Macedonia. Verse 2, he traveled through that area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people, and finally arrived in Greece, where he stayed for three months. Now, all these place names can be a bit confusing, so I've got a map on the screen. Here we go. Let's zoom in a bit on the next slide. There we go. Okay, so you can see there Ephesus in that green dot on the right-hand side. He starts there. He goes up north to Troas, 
across the water through that region of Macedonia and then down south to Corinth, which is in Achaia. Achaia equals Greece, same, same place. That's where he is. Now, if you know the story of Axwell, you might be thinking to yourself, hang on a second, Paul's already been to these places before. We've heard about all these places in our earlier chapters of Acts. That's right, he has. He's been to all of these places before. What he's doing now is revisiting many places he's been years and years ago. To sort of illustrate this, here's another map of his second journey. And if we compare that again with his third journey, you can see that he follows pretty much the same route all throughout Macedonia and Achaia. Why does he do this? Why bother going back to people he's already seen and preached and seen converted? Wouldn't it be better to go to fresh ground, new territory, more people to reach with the gospel of Jesus? Look at the words in the Bible. 20 verse 2, he traveled through that area speaking many words of encouragement to the people. Paul is back to that strengthening work that we saw two weeks ago. Whoops, sorry, there we go. Um, you see, Paul's work is more than strengthening existing believers. It's about, sorry, it's more than evangelizing new converts. It involves strengthening existing believers by preaching God's word. Not just about making new disciples. It's about seeing those disciples grow fully mature. Colossians 1.28. How precious a thing that must have been for Paul. To return to all these people he's seen years and years ago, to see the progress they had made in the faith. How precious a thing it is for us to watch people grow over the years into godly Christian men and women. How encouraging it is as a Christian friend or as a growth group leader or a youth group leader to see people making real progress in the Christian faith over the years. I've got some short stories for you to encourage you about this. Story number one, about six years ago, I started to, eat, started to teach the Year 6 to 8 Bible studies, same thing as 5 to 8 Bible study, uh, over at Harrington Park Congregation. We spent one term uh, learning about the structure of the Bible, how the whole Bible all fits together. You know, you've got Old Testament, New Testament, uh, all the different books of the Bible with the different genres, how it all points to Jesus, that sort of thing. I made a poster for them with all the books of the Bible on there to show the different um, you know, genres. So I think it's up on the screen behind me. Anyway, fast forward, there it is, there's the poster with all the different books of the Bible. Fast forward six years, I found the poster in the wardrobe the other day, I dug it out, I stuck it on the fridge, I thought, you know, maybe this will be useful for growth group or something, I don't know. I think our um, real estate agent thought it was a bit odd when they did an inspection of our house, but anyway, it doesn't matter. Fun fact, at growth group, sure enough, someone noticed it. In fact, someone who was in that six to eight Bible study all those years ago noticed it. They said, hey... I remember that poster. You made that for us five or six years ago, and I remember that. That was really encouraging for me. That clumsy little poster I made, they remembered it. It had made a difference in their walk with Jesus. I preached this talk last week at night church, and after church, someone came up to me, someone who's in year 12 at the moment, and they said, I remember that poster as well. I've still got it. You gave me a little copy. It's in my Bible. This young man has since grown strong in the Lord, in each of his study periods, he's in year 12, in each of his study periods, he doesn't do his classwork. He reads the Bible in the, in the study period room. I think that's pretty cool. I'm excited to see how God will use him to grow his church in the years and decades to come. As I reflected on the growth that these two young men have demonstrated since those early days, that's a, such a precious thing. They've come a long way. Second story. Last year, 
our Harrington Park congregation uh, celebrated 20th year anniversary. Mark Thomas, here he is on the screen. Mark is a long-time partner and, in fact, a pillar of the Harrington Park Church. Mark was diagnosed with motor neurone disease about, I think it was about 15 months ago. And his, his condition has declined really, really, really quickly. It's, it's tragic. It's a very sad, uh, very sad story. And he got up at the, um, the 20th anniversary and he shared with us some of the struggles and the suffering that he's enduring. But also, he shared with us the importance of getting right with God. And he shared with us the hope of life forever with the resurrected body. It was a really special interview. I remember chatting with Mark afterwards, uh, and that day. And as we were talking, me and Mark, this other guy, Liam, rocks up. There he is on the screen. Liam is a member of our night church, so he doesn't normally see Mark. Um, but he said, he rocked up to Mark. He says, Mark, it's good to see you. I remember you. And I just want to say thank you because you gave me my first Bible when I was in year five when you taught me scripture at Harrington Park School. I remember I started to weep as I saw this beautiful conversation unfold. Liam is now a faithful core partner of our night church family. He serves God's people tirelessly. All those years ago, Mark gave Liam that Bible, and over many years, it's had great gospel impact. He's still got it to this day. It was a joy to see them reunited again last year. One more story. This is Ellie and Patrick. There they are. Ellie and Patrick are also members of our night church family. They started coming along to church in early 2018. And you know why they chose our church to turn up to? They were looking for a church. They chose our church because... Jono taught Ellie SRE scripture when she was in year three. How cool is that? I remember going along to EC with Ellie and Pat. They joined a growth group. They became Christians, praise God. They got married in the middle of lockdown. They're now both leading at our youth group. They've given talks there, and they're even expecting their first child in December. It has been a totally awesome joy to see them progress in the faith over the years to see how they turned away from idols, to serve the living and true God, and have grown mature in Him. How precious a thing it is, friends, to watch people grow over the years into godly Christian men and women. I wonder if Paul shared a similar joy as he revisited all these places he'd already been to, seeing the progress they had made, visiting old friends and sharing in gospel partnership and life together. Paul came back to these believers to strengthen them with God's word, and it would have been a precious time for them. Paul's trip through Macedonia ends with three months in Greece, probably throughout winter. And fun fact, this is where he writes the book of Romans. Continuing in our story, verse 3, because some Jews had plotted against him just as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to go back through Macedonia. So he's got three months in Greece. End of the three months, he's keen to go back toward Jerusalem. But once again, Paul encounters opposition. This time it's from Jewish opponents in Greece. But once again, we're reminded that gospel increase cannot be hindered because Jesus will grow his kingdom despite hindrances. You see, even if Paul's plans to sail for Syria are blocked, no matter, He travels back through Macedonia. He's given even more opportunity to revisit those same guys again. Go back to the map for a second, please, Dan. We see it on the map. See how all the arrows are like two-way arrows? 
That's because Paul goes back the same way he came. It was like a big boomerang sort of thing. Trying to stop the growth of God's kingdom, or in other words, trying to stop the preaching of the gospel, is like trying to push a beach ball under the water of a swimming pool. It's a fruitless effort. It will never succeed. You know, you, you try to squash it down under the water, but then it just shoots sideways and bursts up again. It will never succeed. This is Paul's big travel journey. Now we're going to move on to consider his traveling buddies. Verse 4, read with me. He was accompanied by Sopater, son of Pyrrhus from Berea, Aristarchus from, and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derby, Timothy also, Antichicus and Trophimus from the province of Asia. These men went on ahead and waited for us at Troas. Here these guys are, all on the screen. I'm sure that's exactly what they looked like. Two little points I want to highlight here. Number one, all of these companions of Paul are from all different places, from all over the world. So going left to right, Berea and Thessalonica, they're in the region of Macedonia, that bit Paul's just been touring through up the top. Derby and Lystra, they're further east in the province of Galatia. And Ephesus, of course, is in the province of Asia, where Paul started off. These seven men met Paul on his earlier journeys, and they've been sent by their various churches from all over the place as representatives to join in on Paul's later missions. I don't know about you, but I think that's pretty cool. Gospel mission to all nations generates disciple-making disciples from those nations who go out to other nations. It's a self-perpetuating thing. Second thing we can learn from these seven guys is this. The strengthening work of the church is not a one-man mission. Paul did not, in fact, could not, do his mission work alone. And it's not even as if, you know, Paul's the master. It's Paul's ministry, and he's just got seven little apprentices, little helpers who, you know, pass him the tools and that sort of thing. No, no, no. These guys are all valuable partners in the ministry. They're core, responsible people who play critical roles. Put it this way. The church is not the minister. Just call it out. What does the word church mean? Does anyone know? Assembly, Assembly, gathering, that's right, exactly. By very definition, the church is multiple people gathered together because we have something in common, following the risen Lord Jesus Christ. As multiple members then of one body, we all have a part to play, all of us. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. At the moment, and over the past couple of weeks, many of our church's staff team have been away on well-deserved holidays. Gav's away right now, actually. But does this mean that all of a sudden our church is just broken and all our progress and growth in the faith just, just hit pause until they all come back to fix us up? No. We don't rely on a pope or on church traditions. We rely on the Word of God and on one another. I strengthen you in the faith just as you strengthen me in the faith as we get on with our daily work of building each other up by God's word because the strengthening work of the church is not a one-man mission. So what we learned from Paul's big journey? He goes around to revisit existing believers. He strengthens them by preaching God's word. And he's not alone in achieving that mission but rather surrounded by faithful mission partners from all over the place, because the strengthening work of the church is not a one-man mission. All right, we're moving on to our second short story. We're about the 15-minute mark, so if you've fallen asleep, wake up, 
I'm going to grab a drink of water, and we're going to keep going with our second story. This one about a sermon at Sleepyhead. All right, here we go. Once Paul and his companions, they're all reunited in Troas, we get this little snapshot of this seven-day stay in Troas as a sort of zoomed-in section of this two-year journey that we've just seen earlier on. So from verse 7, read with me. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people. And because he intended to leave the next day, he kept on talking till midnight. In this little zoomed-in snapshot of Paul's uh, typical visit routine, we see what reveals to us his priorities. His priority is strengthening and encouraging the believers. He's only with them for seven days, and on the last day, they come together to share a meal. Meal is probably the Lord's Supper. They come together to share the meal, but also to be encouraged by the Word of God. Just imagine for a sec that you're sitting in growth group, and for some reason, you're going to leave for the other side of the world tomorrow. You're never going to come back. This is the last growth group time that you're going to have with these people. What would you do in those final hours together? How would you spend those final hours if you're never going to see these people again? For Paul, the priority in these final hours with the church at Troas is to preach to them. But it's not just a priority for Paul. It's a priority for all the people. They have come together on a Sunday afternoon, just about to launch into another week of work, but they're willing to stay up late into the night, till midnight, to hear this guy preach the Word of God. The church in Troas is eager to be strengthened by God's Word. How do we muscle up for the Christian life? By taking seriously our own learning of God's Word. But more of that later on. Let's keep going. Verse 8. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Poor Eutychus. This account might read as a bit of a funny story on the surface, but it's actually really quite tragic. Eutychus is described as a young man, In ancient times, this probably means he's around 10, 12, 14 years old. So what we're reading reading here is is the sudden tragic death of a child or a teenager. Let's imagine the scene. It's 11.30 p.m. The sun has well and truly set. It's dark and cold outside, but it's warm inside. There are many lamps. The upstairs room is packed full of people. The Apostle Paul is up the front, preaching and teaching from the Word of God. All his seven companions are there too, as well as many men and women from the church in Troas. Eutychus is seated in a window up the back. The window is just an opening in the wall. There's no glass pane. Eutychus is tired from the week's work. He's excited that Paul's come back to visit their church, and he wants to listen to what he has to say, but Eutychus is exhausted. He's fighting to stay awake. His eyes droop shut. His shoulders sink. Paul's voice from the front fades to the back of his mind as it talks on and on. Eutychus falls backwards out the window, dropping to the ground from the third story. Bang! People rush downstairs. The parents hurry over. He is picked up, dead. 
The Apostle Paul is among the stampede thundering down the stairs. He comes to the front of the crowd around the dead boy. He throws himself down on the lifeless body, wrapping his arms around him. Don't be alarmed. He's alive. The boy opens his eyes. He is alive. The crowd gasps with amazement. His parents help him to his feet. What a miraculous relief. The young man hugs his parents. They take him home alive, and all are greatly comforted. This tragic story has a glorious ending. Why did Luke include it in his account? Maybe simply because something extraordinary happened that night. A dead man raised to life. That doesn't happen very often. Maybe he included it because this story is actually very similar to two stories in the Old Testament, Elijah and Elisha raising dead youths to life. Maybe that's why it's in here. Maybe this story is here just to show us the normalcy of tragedy and grief in the common human experience. All of these things may be true, but what I want us to see today is that the resurrection gives us hope and that preaching is the priority. Not resurrection hope in this world, but hope in the world to come. In my little dramatic retelling there of the story, I actually skipped a verse. I hope you noticed that because you were reading through your Bible. I skipped verse 11. Here it is. Then he went upstairs again, broke bread, and ate. After talking until daylight, he left. After God raises Eutychus to life through his servant Paul, Paul goes back upstairs, and presumably all the people go back up with him. What do they do? They break bread. They eat, which is once again likely to be the Lord's Supper, which remembers the death and resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And keep in mind that all of this is happening on the first day of the week, Sunday, the day that Jesus was raised from the dead. So putting all of that together, I wonder if they took the Lord's Supper that day, that night, for the second time, to remind one another of Jesus' resurrection, which gives people hope for eternal life. Not for temporary resurrection here on earth, like Eutychus or those youths with Elijah and Elisha, or even Lazarus in John 11. Now, all of those guys died, were raised back to life, but then they died again years later. Now, we don't wait for and expect God to bring us physical resurrection in this world. No, no, no. This world, this world is full of suffering and grief, tragedy, even, even terminal illness and death. These things are the norm rather than the exception in this fallen world. And that is truly awful. But we do have hope for resurrection in the age to come, for life after death in heaven for eternity. Jesus' resurrection means that we too have resurrection. We are spiritually raised with Christ now. And when he comes to take us home, we will be physically resurrected to catch up with that spiritual reality. Eutychus's parents and the church at Troas may have been greatly comforted by taking him home alive that night, but we can take a greater comfort, for we have resurrection hope for eternity. In our short story, what happens after they break bread? Paul keeps preaching. This guy won't shut up. He's preached till midnight already and he keeps going until daybreak. Can you imagine an all-night sermon? No doubt now sharing encouragement about the resurrection from the dead. So we see yet again that the preaching of the word is the big priority for the Apostle Paul. 
wherever he goes. It's the priority for his listeners. They stay up all night to listen to him. And it's definitely a priority for Eutychus. He, he persisted in listening to the word of God, even though he was exhausted. All right, I'm about to say the magic words that makes everyone ears prick up. Ready? And now for some implications to close. If it's true that gospel mission involves strengthening existing believers by preaching God's word, then what should we do about it? What are we going to do? Three points. Two short points, one long point. Ready? Why not write these down on your little bulletin that you got on the way in? I'll put them on the screen. Number one, invest Christianly in people for the long haul. Like Ken spoke about at the men's brekkie a couple of weeks back, it might take 30 years, but God might use your efforts to bear gospel fruit. Like Paul, who preached and revisited churches multiple times, the Christian witness is rarely a one-time event, one-hit thing. So keep praying for people's growth. You never know how close someone is to accepting Jesus as Lord. They might do it next week. So never give up on praying for someone. Keep using your share card. I've got mine up here somewhere. Keep using your share card. Keep praying for people. How cool would it be to have someone come up to you in five years' time, 10 years' time, 15 years' time. How cool would it be for someone to come up to you in heaven and say, hey, thank you so much for praying for me, for reading the Bible with me, for investing Christianly in me all those years ago. You made a big difference in my life, and because of that, I'm now standing firm in the Lord Jesus. How cool would that be? Point two, we need each other. Strengthening work of the church is not one-man mission. You may have heard of the gospel summary called Two Ways to Live. I've come up with another two ways. It's called Two Ways to Church. There's two ways you can view church, flourishing church or consumer church. First one, flourishing church. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, Colossians 3.16. We need one another, guys. It's our job. It's our duty to teach and warn and build one another up from the Bible. We can do this in heaps of ways, reading the Bible together at growth group or one-to-one mentoring, encouraging and rebuking each other in conversation after church. Even singing together in church is a way that we build each other up from the Word as we journey the Christian life shoulder to shoulder. That's a picture of a flourishing church. The second way to view church is consumer church. It's like going to the movies, I'm just here to receive a service. I'm like a a paying customer. I turn up, I do a bit to help out, then I sit back and receive what the church or the minister will provide for me. What a backwards picture of church. Something that bothers me is that we talk about our church, our time together on a Sunday morning as a church service. We don't come here to receive a service. We come here to serve one another. I reckon a much better name for our time together on Sunday would be a church gathering. That's what church is, isn't it? A gathering. So get rid of any ideas of consumer church. It doesn't exist. Being part of a church is like being a soldier on a battleship, not a tourist on a cruise ship. We need one another. Last point. The preaching of the word is a priority. So don't fall asleep in the sermon, for goodness sake. In case you've got a too small view of the Bible, let me remind you, the Bible is God's Word. Do you delight in God's Word, like the psalmist does in Psalm 1? If you give little effort 
to listening to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who created you, who saved you, who adopted you, who listens to your prayers. If you give little effort to listening to his voice from the pages of Scripture, well, friends, then you need to repent. Sermons are about teaching the Bible. Teaching and learning go together. The exercise requires a good teacher, but also a willing listener, a willing learner. Otherwise, it doesn't really work. Now, I've got a level with you guys. I'm a preacher's kid. I've sat through a lot of sermons in my short life, and I get it. It is hard work. I remember when I was in year six, I was finally allowed to go to night church. I thought it was the coolest thing ever. That's where all the cool kids go on a Sunday night, right, to night church. But then I quickly found out that night church typically has the same sermons as Harrington Park Church does on the same day. So there I was, sitting at night church, thinking it was the coolest thing, and then some guy gets up, Dad, and uh, preaches the same sermon that I heard him say this morning. How boring is that? What a waste of time. Surely there's more productive use of my time than to hear the same sermon again. I could watch YouTube, I could plan my week ahead, I could do anything. Surely anything's better than this. But then I grew up, and I realized that I don't go to church for my own sake. I go to church for the sake of everybody else. So if I'm going to be falling asleep or scrolling through my phone during the sermon, well, that's going to be a massive discouragement to all my brothers and sisters at church. So here you go. Here's five top tips for keeping the preaching the priority from five top tips for good sermon listening. Here you go. Take one or two or five of these and give them a crack. Here you go. Number one, bring your own paper Bible to church and keep it open and read it during the talk. Heaps of benefits to this, guys. It helps keep you interested. Helps you discern if the preacher's being a heretic or not. How do you know what I'm saying is true if you're not actually checking it with the Bible where the authority lies? It helps you get to know your own Bible better. That's tip one, bring your own paper Bible. Tip number two, write notes. Even if you never look at this piece of paper again, writing notes during the talk will help you stay focused on what the person is saying. It helps you keep, flow, keep track of the flow of the passage. Think about it with your kids, right? If your kid comes home from school and they haven't written a single note from a whole day of class, well, what does that tell you about what they've actually learned that day? Number three, if your phone causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. In other words, if your phone causes, distracts you from paying attention to the Word of God, then get rid of it. Don't bring it to church. Don't bring it to growth group. You don't need it. Think about it with your kids again. If your kid's on a screen when they're supposed to be listening or when they're supposed to be doing something else, what do you do? You tell them to turn off the screen and focus. Turn off the screen and listen up. Adults, we are not that different from these kids. Number four, read the passage in advance. If a pastor's going to spend 10, 15, 20 hours to prepare a sermon, then surely it's a good idea for us as listeners to spend five minutes reading it in advance. Maybe read it with your spouse or your kids if you've got spouse or kids so that you're ready to learn from the Word of God come Sunday morning. Here you go. Next Sunday, Gibson Humphreys is going to be preaching from Acts chapter 20, verse 13 to 38. Now you know what to read. There you go, some homework if you want. Last point, ask questions. When the talk's done, ask, was the point of the talk the point of the passage? Is this talk actually true to what the text is saying, or is it just some waffle that someone made up? Ask, what is, sorry, try to take one thing from the talk, one thing to keep thinking about, one thing to share with someone over morning tea about what you learned from the Bible, one thing to put into practice 
this week. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that it's good. We thank you that it's true. We pray that you might help us to keep the preaching of the word a priority in our own learning and study of your word. Help us to remember that the strengthening of the church is not a one-man mission. And we pray that you might help us to keep strengthening one another by your word as we journey the Christian life together, shoulder to shoulder. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.